stigmatizing language can create a lot more barriers. It puts people in a box. There's a lot of stigma surrounding those medications. And when you have someone who is knowledgeable about prescribing those in appropriate settings, they can be life-saving. This peer recovery coach could meet with them and find out what they need to get set up, to get out, so they can they can have their needs provided for safely in the community. There are multiple pathways to recovery. There is no one way that somebody enters and maintains their own recovery. Welcome back. This is Something for the Pain, a podcast produced by Project Echo in Idaho, made for Idaho's healthcare professionals working to learn best practices in the fight to prevent, treat, and facilitate recovery from opioid and substance use disorders in communities across the state of Idaho. I'm your host, Sam Steffen. Well, the E stands for extensions, looking where we aim to be. CH is for community healthcare, the welfare of you and me. Last episode, we heard from Ledessa Foster, Clinical Services Manager at BPA Health in Boise. Ledessa gave a presentation focusing on the levels of care in addiction treatment as outlined by ASAM, the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Uh, it's important that individuals on staff understand the stages of change, as well as the ability to identify if there are some mental health symptoms that are creeping in that may be impacting treatment. On today's episode, episode seven, we've got a special guest joining us on the program. We're going to be talking with Monica Forbes, CEO of Recovery United, a grassroots, person-centered, nonprofit organization that is led and governed by the recovery community. Monica is also the founder and CEO of the Peer Wellness Center in Boise and The Rock, a recovery-oriented community center in McCall that acknowledges multiple pathways to recovery. If you've tuned in for previous episodes of Something for the Pain, you may have heard us talk about The Rock before. The Rock. The Rock. The Rock. Which is pure support recovery. It's a recovery-oriented community. There are boots on the ground. Monica is going to be giving us a more detailed account about what The Rock has to offer and sharing some of the services available in the Valley County recovery community for folks who may be in the process of re-entering the workforce following a period of incarceration. All of that is coming up, so stay tuned. Sign up for our free sessions. There's a handful every month. Echo. And here's Monica. Monica, let's start by having you introduce yourself to our audience. Okay. I'm Monica Forbes. I'm a person in long-term recovery. For me, that means I've not had opiates since 2004. And I'm also a returning citizen. I currently serve as the CEO of Recovery United, which is an organization that um, operates and supports recovery community centers across the state. And I am a nationally certified peer recovery support specialist. I'm an Idaho certified recovery coach supervisor and very fortunate to um, serve on a few boards and committees that mostly focus on 
reentry on addressing the opioid crisis and that address um, improving lives for people that live with behavioral health disorders and substance use disorder. You're also the founder of the Peer Wellness Center in Boise. I am one of the founders. I'm the only one left <laughs> from those of us that started uh, Peer Wellness Center back in 2014. We uh, had a steering committee that was just kind of looking at the whole idea of what's a recovery community center and bringing those to Idaho. And then I was the um, the first president of the board and the first um, executive director of Peer Wellness Center. And is Peer Wellness kind of responsible for for places like The Rock in Valley County? Oh, yes, yes. So uh, The Rock in Valley County, which is the newest um, recovery community center in Idaho, um, is a satellite of Peer Wellness Center out of Boise. But we have other recovery centers. We have um, sort of nine recovery community centers where we're sort of stood up across the state. Um, across, So there's at least one in every single region of Idaho. And a couple of years ago, we realized that the rural nature of Idaho um, has created this situation where we have a very underserved population um, in our more rural areas. So each one of those nine recovery community centers was tasked with doing rural outreach and making sure that we're doing what we can to serve the people that, that don't live close to a bigger town or don't have access to just come in and drop in at a recovery community center or attend meetings there. So The Rock was one of um, our rural outreach efforts that, that came to fruition, and, and we were able to open that in November of last year. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds like it's it's a great, um, great resource for folks. Um, can you maybe talk to folks who may not be familiar with the idea of peer recovery, um, kind of talk a little bit more about like what, what that entails and kind of how that works. Sure. So peer recovery is a concept of taking an individual who has lived experience, somebody who has been there and is in recovery themselves and providing them some additional training and, um, giving them clinical supervision and the ability to connect with other peers who are at their own place in their own recovery path in their own recovery journey. And the concepts that, that drive peer to peer support um, have been um, sort of set out by SAMHSA and evolved as the workforce has evolved. And in Idaho, a recovery coach um, has certain requirements. They require at least one year in recovery themselves um, that they go through a minimum 56 hours of training and that they become certified through the Idaho Alcohol and Drug Board, the IBADCC, um, that certifies alcohol and drug counselors. They also, in Idaho, certify the peer recovery coaches or peer recovery support specialists, as you will. And this individual then, um, while they're certified, they're able to actually work. And, um, and a treatment agency could bill for that service or they could be contracted. Um, a lot of them, um, as the workforce is developed, have volunteered, um, just volunteered their time outside of their nine to five normal life. <laughs> just uh, to have the ability to support somebody else that's either just starting or maintaining their own recovery. 
Yeah. And at The Rock, you do have peer support recovery coaches and specialists there available to meet with folks. Um, but you, but there are also a lot of recovery approaches. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, um, about like the multiple pathways to recovery philosophy that The Rock embraces? Sure. And, and this is something that I think was one of the most exciting concepts that really drew me to the recovery movement and the existence of recovery community centers, the, um, the vocation of being a recovery coach that's not just tied to one type of um, recovery. And it's basically the concept behind it, Sam, is just that there are multiple pathways to recovery. There is no one way that somebody enters their and maintains their own recovery, which is like any other type of chronic disease. Um, there's more than one way to do it. So what that means for a recovery coach or for a recovery community center um, to embrace um, multiple pathways to recovery it means that I'm not going to tell you what your recovery path is going to look like. I'm not going to tell you what type of treatment you should do because I believe that this is your path. I believe you're going to need options to choose from. And so the recovery community centers um, make sure that they have a wide variety of different types of support groups to um offer to someone. So it's sort of cafeteria style, if you will, so that you have options. We run into people um, that are like, may not have a, a faith-based approach. Um, that's just not really a part of their life. It's not something that, that they would buy into. That could prevent them from maybe attending a 12-step or getting very involved with an anonymous group. Because the spiritual component that goes with that program is pretty strong. It's sort of the basis for the entire program. And there have been adaptations of that program. There's atheist, agnostic, 12-step groups. Um, there's a lot of different things, but you have to kind of take the time to go find those. And so we want to make it as easy as possible for people to access what is going to work for them. And um there's some people that are like, yeah, I went in there. That just didn't work for me. But now I don't have anything. I, so we have. it's our job to make sure that we give them options. So we try to make sure that there's a faith-based ones, non-faith-based ones, maybe a Buddhist approach. Maybe it's an atheist agnostic approach. That's just the spiritual side of it. There's some people that just don't do well sitting in a room, just sitting in that circle of chairs, drinking coffee and having that meeting. They're active. They want to go out and do things. So making sure that we can connect individuals to active and sober groups like the Phoenix that um, do hiking and um, exercise and camping and all those really fun things that you're still providing that ability to connect with other people in recovery, but in, in as many different ways as possible. Yeah. And, and you also have there's something called the smart recovery there as well. We do. And we have smart recovery in, in all of our recovery community centers simply because it's an evidence-based practice that is based on a cognitive behavioral model. And it um, has four steps. It's an empowering strengths-based approach to recovery. Literally, their tagline is the power of choice. <laughs> and um, you have to go through special training in order to host or facilitate those smart groups because it does have that, that cognitive behavioral aspect to it. But we have a lot of people that will come to smart recovery groups and or even individually on their own work through the smart recovery concept because it doesn't have any spiritual aspect to it. 
It's not that they don't believe in your spiritual health. It's just not part of this program. And people who maybe had resistance to something else um, find their tribe, find their group of people and some concepts that they can really buy into. Smart Recovery is also different from a lot of different types of traditional recovery programs in that it's anti-label. For example, if I when I, the only time, Sam, you will ever hear me refer to myself as an addict is when I'm in a 12-step or anonymous group meeting. Um, that's out of respect for the program and the tradition. Uh-huh. Anywhere outside that door, I'm going to introduce myself as a person in long-term recovery. Person-centered language, strength-based approaches, you know, kind of getting rid of that negative stereotype. And it's not just the stigma that the community might be giving us or that we're used to getting. We self-stigmatize and it, it can be very detrimental to our health, our emotional health, our recovery to do that. So smart recovery is very much focused on you're a person first. You are, you have intrinsic value just because you're a human being. And we don't want those negative stereotypes and those negative labels on you. Um, And we're going to refer to you as a person. So that is another aspect that smart recovery kind of takes to um, approaching, giving someone the tools that they need to be successful in their own recovery. Yeah. And I mean, you're mentioning stigma here. Can you talk a little bit about how the stigmas of recovery could potentially really impact somebody's decision to even pursue some of these programs? Well, I mean, historically, we've sort of taken this approach to somebody who lives with substance use disorder um, that, first of all, that they made a choice. They chose, they're choosing um, to abuse their substance. They're choosing to continue to to use and despite negative consequences and without taking a look at the science behind this disease, without understanding the chemical hook and the um, anatomical and physiological changes that happen in our brain when we're using or abusing a substance, they, they tend to go, well, if you're choosing this, then why should we help you? You know, um, you now that I see what you're doing, your behaviors are not logical. I'm scared of you. And we take people that are using or, or abusing drugs and, and we treat them differently when they come into our hospital, into our ER. We treat them differently if they're our employee. They're unreliable. Um, as a family member, well, I'm just going to cut you off. I'm not going to talk to you anymore because what you're doing is not aligning with what I think you should be doing. And you're choosing this. So the very first major concept that influences a lot of the stigma that we have right now is that myth and that completely debunked idea that substance use disorder is a choice. But that influences how we work with and treat people. So with that going on, it's culturally, that's the way it is. Um, In our families, most of the time that's going to trickle down into how we interact with our families and and every other social relationship in our lives. It affects um, whether or not we get prosecuted. And, you know, we started this quote unquote war on drugs right back in the 70s. But well, the war wasn't on drugs. It was on people. We started going, we're going to ostracize you. Um, We're going to arrest you. We're going to separate you from society. We're going to go put you somewhere else. And we're going to get you away from here. Um, That causes huge problems when you look at someone who's trying to get into recovery or um, get their life back on track. 
and most people, I should say, Sam, cannot go around and tell people that they're living in recovery because it immediately conjures up this image of this person's unreliable. All of those reinforce that self-stigma that starts going on, too. And it's, it's um, a very real concern for someone who says, I have substance use disorder. Oh, my gosh, I'm realizing that this use is an, or abuse is starting to affect my life. It can affect whether or not they'll even reach out and talk to somebody or mm-hmm. ask for help because somebody might find out and they do, especially in small towns and small communities, which is something that really is one of those barriers that we are very aware of at The Rock up in Valley County is that there are a lot of people who could use some help, that could use um, some support, that could use some treatment, but they're afraid to reach out because somebody will find out. They're ashamed of what this substance is doing to them and to their lives. But if anyone were to find out, it's going to impact their social standing in the community. And in a small town, let's get real, most everyone If you were to bring that out into the open, even to just one or two people, the chances of someone else finding out are pretty, pretty good. And if they're not going to be supportive, understanding and and helpful, it could negatively impact your job, whether or not you get that promotion that's coming up, whether or not you still have a job. It can affect whether or not your kids are allowed to play with your neighbor's kids. So it's stigma and that negative image, both from our community and the one that we have of ourselves, is probably one of the most damaging things to making support, treatment, and recovery available to someone who's living with substance use disorder. Yeah. And I mean, it also just kind of speaks to how important having peer supports and people who have kind of been through it to be there to help out with it. Um, I spoke with Skip Clapp, who's the director of court services in Valley County, and we were talking about the number of folks who are currently involved in the justice system who have substance use disorders and what kinds of services might be available to them. I wanted to ask you about the day one program and things that might be available for people once they're released from jail or prison. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of those services? Everything that we do down in Boise is available to the the community in Valley County, if you will. So what we are hoping and what we do down in Boise and what we're hoping to do up at The Rock is whenever somebody is being released from an institution or a facility, um, we have the ability to come and pick them up right at the gate or right at the front door, if you will, and help them um, navigate re-entering the community. And there are so many challenges that a lot of people probably, unless you've been through that situation, wouldn't think of. Um, A lot of people that are coming out of jail or prison are going to be on supervision, on probation or parole. Um, Maybe having a PO um, or a probation officer is something that's a new concept for you. While you were incarcerated, you probably lost your job. You may or may not have a place to live. You may or may not have damaged your relationships with your your social circle that you had before. Or you've had enough time to think, yeah, maybe those aren't the friends I should be hanging out with anymore if I don't want to use or abuse substances. So um, I now I don't have a social circle. And you probably don't have even the basics that most people just take for granted, like a hairbrush, 
toothpaste. <laughs> um, you may not even have an ID or a social security card, but your expectation is that you're just, you know, I think some people think you're just going to walk out and pick up your life and move on. It's really not that easy for most people. So our day one program was designed that people with lived experience who have reentered society from a correctional facility can come in and pick you up at the gate and help you address, first of all, all of those basic needs that you're going to need just to exist in the community. Um, hygiene bags, bedding. If you're going to a transitional house, most of them don't provide bedding. And so where are you going to get that? You haven't been working. You have no money. Um, you have lint in your pockets and a box full of legal paperwork. You know, mm -hmm. um, what are you going to do with that? So you're going to need food. And there's little gaps in between the systems that when filled, um, can just make all the difference in the world, especially when the person that's helping connect you to those resources or providing those resources to you has been where you are. They're not judging. They know what it's like. They just want you to have everything that you might need in order to be successful out here. So first thing, first things first, let's take care of the basics. Let's make sure you have food, shelter. You're, maybe you're going to get 30 days worth of EBT or SNAP benefits. Um, the card will get loaded up for you and you'll have, you'll have money on your card to be able to go and buy groceries, but not until tomorrow. And the last meal you ate was breakfast that morning in jail or prison. So we can um, help you uh, get over to a food pantry, get a food box, uh, maybe buy you lunch at McDonald's, whatever that might be. Um, and then I help you address all those basic needs. Then it's like, well, you're going to need a job in order to be self-sustaining. You, how are you supposed to go get a job when you don't have a state-issued ID or a social security card? So um, there's all those little things. Maybe you worked in construction and your boss said, yeah, come back, I'll hire you. But you lost all your stuff when you went to jail. And in OSHA is going to require that maybe in that construction job, you have to have some steel-toed boots. Those are not something you can just go to a thrift store and magically you're going to find your size. And some boots and, you know, um, we do have resources in the community. You could probably get help from Voc Rehab, but your appointment's six weeks from now and your job starts tomorrow. There are just all these really small little things that when added up, if you can address them right from the gate and not only address those basic needs, Sam, but start building a relationship, a healthy pro-social relationship with somebody who is um, understands the challenges and not just the practical ones, but the emotional ones of adjusting to being out here in the community again, it just seems to make all the difference in the world. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, you know, folks who may be hearing about some of these, these programs for the first time, are there ways that people in the community can get involved? Absolutely. All you need to do is contact your local recovery community center. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that you can get involved. We have some people that just donate, like maybe to that contingency fund. The, like we've exhausted every other community resource. And um, but, but the work booth is just a really good example of that. Um, they need them today so they, they can keep that roof over their head. So we have a, a small a small fund of a couple of people that just donate every month to it. So we always take donations for those types of programs, for those types of situations. And you can specify, I want it to go to this program. Another way is to volunteer. 
There's a couple of different ways to do that. You can volunteer at the Recovery Community Center. The Idaho Department of Corrections has a, a called Free to Succeed Mentoring Program that trains volunteers from the community that may or may not have lived experience. So you don't have to have a criminal history in order to be a mentor with that program. They provide um, training, support, um, and help people figure out how they can help that person coming out in that you know, re reentering society and reentering the community. Uh, a lot of times we have people like, I, I want to, I want to help. I just don't know what to do. Often we turn that back around and go, what are your passions? What are the things that you're good at? What skill or activity do you do that you think would be beneficial to someone who's exploring some of those social or active things prior to recovery? Most of our time was spent making sure that we didn't get sick, which meant, you know, AKA, I'll just be blunt here. <laughs> we, we, were, we were chasing our drug. Um, that was our entire life revolved around our substance. So now here I am in this new life. I've had some time to clean up and I'm, I now have this, and I probably lost my social circle. I'm not hanging out with those people anymore because it's not conducive. Those relationships are not conducive to my choice to be in recovery. What am I going to do with that free time? Where am I going to have social connections? And so um, we're always looking for things to um, to offer to people. Like maybe it's a, a dance class or a candle making class or I really like hiking. Well, how would you like to organize a hiking group that meets every Saturday or something and goes around the lake or what have you? Or I'm really into astronomy let's have an astronomy group or creative writing or whatever it is, whatever your passion in and your interest in your skill set is, that's something you can always donate and offer to people that are entering recovery for the first time. But they may be discovering stuff they didn't even know would be fun and exciting. And now at the same time, they're, they're, they have pro social leisure time activities and having fun. And they're also building relationships with someone who is healthy, who is successful, who is doing well out here. So there's a couple of different ways. Yeah, that's, that sounds like great advice. Is there anything else that you would want to share with um, either health, healthcare workers or people in recovery who maybe are hearing about some of these services for the first time? One of the things I was thinking about as I was preparing for our talk today, um, Sam, was the idea that um, because we also we have a program that goes in and works in the ERs. So we have the opportunity to work alongside a lot of healthcare workers. And one of the things that we've noticed is that without even realizing it, um, I think a lot of healthcare workers um, forget that this is a disease. I think somewhere in the back of their mind, there's still that idea that this is a choice. And my request would be that if you work in the healthcare field, whether it's in private practice or in an ER or on the floor in a hospital or even EMTs, um, our first responders, that you ask yourself, do I have that belief? Do I have that bias? And if I do, is that influencing how I interact with my patients? And I say that I know that's a big challenge and that's a really big ask. 
but I ask you that for a reason. I have seen situations where people will not go seek medical attention or they won't let their primary care provider know that they think they may be struggling or that they may have an issue because they're afraid they're going to be treated differently. And I don't think that most of the healthcare workers that I work with and that I have the pleasure of working with, um, you know, consciously think that they've got that bias, but I t- I'm telling you, it can make a difference in how you, how you relate to that patient. And I mean, somebody comes in with uh, another chronic disease, high blood pressure or um, diabetes. I mean, typically they come in, oh, are you okay here? Let's give you some medicine. Let's stabilize your blood glucose. Can I get you a warm blanket? What do you think of having a dietitian come in and meet with you and maybe help you take a look at your diet? It's a, it's a compassionate understanding, I'm not here to judge you. Let's just get you better kind of approach. Somebody comes in for the 10th time on another overdose or alcohol poisoning or the other health problems that go along abscesses and all of those things that can go along with substance misuse. And it, they're treated a little differently. I actually heard a doctor once say, are you done yet? If you really understood the disease of substance use disorder, you would understand that, you know, recovery from that is nonlinear. It's not like, oh, we connected you to treatment. It worked. Let's go on. In fact, most people have to try several times and quite often several different types of treatment until they are successful in their recovery. And how we treat them has a huge impact on how successful they're going to be and whether or not they're even going to come to us and ask for help. So that's one of the things that I try to gently bring up and and get people to understand. Um, Our core philosophies and our approach to this is a very non-judgmental. Not everyone gets it the first time. I don't care how many times it takes you. I'd read a story, Sam, about a gentleman. It was in the paper. Um, He had been to one of our detox facilities in Boise 23 times. And I heard someone else reading the story and making the comment like, oh my gosh, why'd they let him back in 23 times? And I was like, you don't get it. That's amazing. He did not give up. He kept coming back until it worked. And the reason he felt comfortable coming back was because when he walked in there, they didn't judge him. Oh, you're back again. No, they didn't do that. They said, welcome back. Let's try it again. And if this doesn't work, you come back again and you just keep coming back until it works. And I kind of liken that to when our babies are starting to walk, you know, nobody, uh, they stand up, they take a step, you know, and the very Uh next thing you're going to do after they take that first step is they are going to fall down because they're, they're learning how to get those muscles to work and and the brain to communicate and, and, and all of that. But nobody goes to that baby sitting on the floor and says, well, obviously you don't want it bad enough. You know, <laughs> just going to let you sit there and until you're serious about walking. We don't do that. We say, that's okay. Get back up. I'm not, not that we treat each other like babies, but if we could have that mindset, that encouragement, that support, that understanding and approach as a community to somebody who is trying out their legs in recovery for the first time. I think we could see this thing change overnight. That again was an interview with Monica Forbes. 
the CEO of Recovery United, founder of Peer Wellness and The Rock. Information about how to contact the organizations and services that Monica mentioned are available in our podcast show notes on our website, www.uidaho.edu echo hyphen podcast. If you're interested in joining our free live echo sessions to receive continuing education credit, learn best practices, ask a question, or grow your community, please visit our website at www.uidaho.edu echo, where you can register to attend, sign up to receive announcements, donate, and find out more information about our programs. Something for the Pain is brought to you by Echo Idaho, supported by the Whammy Medical Education Program and the University of Idaho, and is made possible by VCorp, the Valley County Opioid Response Project. We here at Echo also want to hear your feedback. We welcome your questions, comments, and suggestions, and invite you to email us at echoidaho at uidaho.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to Something for the Pain using your podcast app. And if you have a moment, write us a review. That's about all the time we have for today. But join us next time and we'll be hearing from Ian Tresoyer and Marjorie Wilson of Idaho's Harm Reduction Project. We're going to be telling us about Idaho's needle exchange programs. That's coming up next time on Something for the Pain. Until then, Idaho, take care of yourself. In answer to our prayers Echo Idaho Sign up Something for the Pain is made possible by grant number GA1RH39585 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDI1 or HRSA. The voices you heard at the beginning of the episode were those of Lindsey Brown, Radha Sadacharan, Skip Clapp, and Monica Forbes, respectively. We'd also like to thank the other contributing voices on today's episode, Shelley Hitt and Courtney Boyce. And a big thanks to all of our listeners, without whom none of this would be possible. Without you, we'd just be talking to ourselves. Michelle Smith is the Echo Idaho Program Director. Katie Palmer is our Assistant Director. Our Marketing Manager is Lindsay Lotus. Our Program Managers are Carly Klein and Lindsay Winters-Jewell. Our Program Coordinators are Kayla Blades, Jessica Whitlock, and Sam Steffen. If you haven't come before, Echo Idaho, sign up for our free sessions.